Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer, and my guest this week is Rahasya. And I first became aware of Rahasya a few weeks ago when I was listening to some interviews uh, that Janet Atwood had conducted on a series she called Dialogues with the Masters. And uh, I guess those had been recorded a couple of years ago. Rahasya was one of the people interviewed. And at at this point, a few weeks later, I don't even remember specifically what he said in, in very great detail, but I liked the feeling that I got from listening to him. I thought, well, I really, I, I really enjoy listening to this guy. He really seems to be clear. He's coming from the heart. And, you know, I'd really enjoy talking to him myself. So I got in touch with Rahasya, and he agreed to an interview. And that's what we're going to do. <laughs> so, Rahasya, welcome, and thank you very much. Thank you. Welcome yeah. to you, too. Thank you. Yeah. Now, you live somewhere in Australia, right? I live in a very beautiful place uh, in Australia near Byron Bay. It's kind of like a paradise. It has mountains and ocean and good surf and mm. very clean air and a lot of rain. So it's all green. So it's very beautiful. Sounds nice. That's in northern Australia? Uh, no, it's the most eastern point. It's exactly in the middle between north and south, uh -huh. the most eastern point. Cape Byron is the most eastern point. But unfortunately, we're not here a lot. You know, we are traveling for seven months of the year for courses all around the world. Well, that doesn't sound like too great of a, a punishment, uh, having to do that. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, you, don't you have courses where you actually go to beautiful places and then you invite people to come to your courses in a beautiful place and have a course? Yes, we do that. We, we have like a regular um, course for couples called Tantra Alchemy mm -hmm. and that is in Bali in a very, very beautiful place. Now we are on the 2nd of July, we are leaving for Europe and we have courses in Sweden in two very beautiful places also in the countryside. So. We are quite spoiled. Also, we will go to Brazil and we will have a retreat at the beach in Brazil. So it's good. Yeah, rough life. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sounds great. Uh, and don't you go out surfing every morning when you get up or something when you're home? I do. I do. Uh, recently, I was a little bit sick, so I couldn't go. But uh, normally, I go every morning, every morning, especially when it's warmer. I go kind of at five o'clock just for the sunrise. It's fantastic. Mm, great routine. Yeah. And you're a doctor as well? Yes, I used to be a medical doctor uh -huh. until I got bored prescribing medicine to people who didn't want to know why they are sick. So mm -hmm. from there, I moved on to become a therapist and then a spiritual teacher. And from your accent, you're from Germany, I would assume. That's right. You can hear it. <laughs> yeah. Even though I speak English for many years, uh, the accent doesn't leave. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Arnold Schwarzenegger has an accent too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's retrace our steps then and uh, we'll kind of get up to the point of understanding how you ended up in Australia and so on. But let's, let's pursue this as a spiritual odyssey. And, uh, you know, why don't you tell us your, your life story in terms of how you got bitten by the spiritual bug, uh, you know, and what various experiences and stages you went through in pursuit of, of that uh, motivation? Well, I could start very early because um, I, I was brought up by a very unconventional family. Uh, when I was a kid, we lived on a boat. My parents didn't have any, uh, you know, home. We lived on a boat in the Mediterranean, and I, 
I didn't really go much to school. My my mother was teaching us. So in a way, my father was very free-spirited and he always believed in freedom, but more in external freedom. And that that external freedom was for me one of the most important things of how I would see my life. So I never wanted to really work for money. I always wanted to do something that I like and money needs to come by the side. So when I decided to study medicine, my parents at the time didn't have enough money to pay for my studies. So I I went ski teaching and sailing teaching in the holidays to earn my studies, which was very beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> You've been blessed from the get-go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, so I was always very fond of traveling. My, my parents lived in Greece. Uh-huh. Uh, first we lived in France and then they lived in Greece. And by the, when I was 21, uh, with two friends I went on a trip, on this famous hippie trip to India mm-hmm. with a Volkswagen bus from Munich. And you drove to India sp- from Munich? Yeah. We drove to India. Across, and Af- that, across Afghanistan and everything. Wow, that's quite a trip. Yes, it was a, an amazing trip. Uh-huh. And uh, I realized only later that this is actually where my spiritual journey began because we took a long time. We stayed in Turkey for a while, and in Turkey I visited all the spiritual places. And one memory I have very strongly when I visited uh, the grave of Jalaluddin Rumi. Mm-hmm. I was sitting at his grave and I was crying and I had no idea why and how, mm-hmm. but I was so touched by this teacher And uh, in Iran when we were in Meshed in the Golden Mosque and in Isfahan in some very beautiful mosques. Mm-hmm. I also felt some remembering and then Afghanistan, Pakistan. And when we crossed the border to India again, this young 21-year-old boy, man, was crying his eyes out, and I had no idea why. I just felt I'm arriving home, even though the outer circumstances were terrible. You know, we had diarrhea, and and, uh, it was raining monsoon, it was in July, it was awful from the external point of view, but internally I felt now I arrived home. Mm. So that was kind of a first taste, and then for a long time nothing happened. I was still traveling, but I was very interested in mountain climbing, in skiing, in sailing, and in pursuing my studies. Then I became a doctor, and I worked in a hospital, and I got a very beautiful job as an emergency doctor in one of the best hospitals in Germany. When they offered me a five-year contract there, the ambitious part in me was very keen because it looked like a lot of money being the head of the department and so on. And my heart was shrinking, so I felt, I cannot do this. So instead of accepting that, uh, that offer, that job, I quit the job and with my partner at the time, I went to India and to Nepal, and for four for four months we were just climbing mountains. And then we went uh, when the season in Nepal ended. We went to northern India, 
And that's where we, we met a couple who had a book of some German journalist who has written about Osho and Puna. And we were close, so we thought, okay, now this is a good moment. Puna sounds very interesting according to his book. So we went to Puna and met, at that time he was called Bhagwan. And again, it was a very interesting situation because my mind, my arrogant doctor's mind, was completely against everything that was happening there. People were dressed in red, they were following a guru, the guru was sitting on its stage. So I was full of resistance, and my heart was absolutely in celebration. And it was kind of such a split between my head and my heart, because here was this... Uh, strange-looking Indian master who was speaking things that my heart knew to be completely true. Nobody ever said it this way. But it was like my heart is speaking, not this outside person, but my inner heart. But uh, my mind still won, so after four weeks I left and we continued traveling. And only six months later we realized now we have seen so many beautiful places, we ended up in Bali. And then we said, okay, let's go back to Pune because this is where we were most impressed and see what is really there. Mm -hmm. And that is where really my inner journey began because then we did many courses, we practiced all the meditations that Osho has given and we felt this is, this is really totally amazing. So for 10 years, we were more or less with Osho, and first in Pune, then we created a big German commune in a castle mm. uh, where I was a medical doctor. I opened a private practice in that castle to take care of the people who would come for courses and to take care of seven villages around. So I was a kind of a strange doctor dressed in red with a mala, you know, <laughs> long, at the time with a long beard and long hair. And yet the people, my practice was always very, very full. People just came. I still don't understand why they came, because in Germany they had all these prejudices against sects and cults and mm -hmm. were afraid. But somehow it worked very well. You must have had a good bedside <laughs> manner. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, during this period where you had been traveling in India before you got to Pune, were you seeing a lot of different yogis and, and gurus and so on, or mainly climbing mountains and stuff? Mainly climbing mountains. I was just uh, interested in climbing mountains and doing some, some uh, expeditions, very, very beautiful. But uh, I wasn't interested spiritually. Uh -huh. Before we actually went to Pune, we went to Goa, and there we met kind of a, a funny American guru who was an astrologer. Hmm. I can't remember his name. But otherwise, we were, we were not really on search of a guru. It, it, the guru came to us in a way. <laughs> right. So you spent about 10 years, both in India and in Germany, uh, with, with Osho and his people. And so, you know, what was and and externally you had red you know clothing and long hair and beads, but internally what was going on during those ten years? Well, internally, I 
I felt the truth that Osho is teaching and living is possible to be recognized inside. And so after a while, after a few years of being a medical doctor in, in that Osho commune in Germany, I realized that the people who would come even to my medical practice in the castle, they only wanted medicine, but they didn't want to look at why they are sick. So mm. I already had learned hypnosis and deep relaxation methods. And so I went more and more into therapy. And I went, uh, at that time, Osho went to the ranch in America. And they had a beautiful program called uh, the counseling training. It was a three-month course to learn the art of counseling. So I went to the ranch and did that three-month course. And after that, I sold the medical practice and just uh, became a traveling therapist. Hmm. Now, my inner situation was really like this. I discovered inner limitations, let's say, through childhood conditioning. And then I was going through primal therapy. And then I was teaching primal therapy because I thought that if I have released my primal issues, I will be free. Is primal so, therapy the one that John Lennon did where you scream and everything? Is that, or is that something else? It's basically going back into your childhood and reliving very emotionally most of your childhood traumas. Yes, screaming is included and crying and a lot of emotional release and looking at how your conditioning happened. So that was a very intense time. And I thought that, you know, if my deeper childhood traumas would be released, I would be free. But soon I realized I, w I was not. Mm -hmm. And when at the time when Osho came back to Pune from America, we also went back to Pune now with my new partner, who is still the same partner today. Pune was at that time really the hub of meditation and therapy, and all the famous therapists that came to the end of their line in the West because something was missing, they came to Pune, and uh, what was added was meditation and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So I went through a huge learning process by participating and teaching many, many processes. So first, primal therapy, sexual deconditioning, energy work, breath therapy, bioenergetics, encounter. I think I went through all of it and teaching all of it until I kind of become a, became a relative famous teacher in Pune, <laughs> which... which was helpful because that helped us to travel around the world during the time when in Pune was monsoon time mm. to earn our living because in Pune we had to pay for everything that, mm. uh, you know, for our stay and for food. Right. So we needed to find a way to get money. And that that's where our travels started, travels all around the world because people would join courses in Pune and then they would invite us to... Europe to South America to Japan hmm. and so on. I was just going to say, uh, so it sounds like it was a very experimental place with all these different therapies, like um, everything, all sorts of different things were being tried to see if they would facilitate um, growth or you know unfoldment of consciousness or, or whatever. Is is that a fair characterization of? Absolutely. I mean, Osho's vision was always that therapy in itself is not worth anything, 
except it is a wonderful possibility to prepare the ground for meditation. Huh. As a therapist, I always thought Osho doesn't really understand us because we are so important as therapists. <laughs> and they said, you know, you therapists, you just play, but let me do the real work, which mm -hmm. is meditation. But he did consider that therapy important as an adjunct or as a you know, prelim preliminary stage to, to meditation. Absolutely, and I, I see that too. It's, it's very, very helpful. Mm -hmm. And yet, if somebody believes that he can be freed through therapy, I would say no. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting because I uh, kind of grew up in the Transcendental Meditation Movement and there there was a, a, a definite um, discouragement to, uh, from yeah. doing any kinds of therapy. It was considered that meditation alone would take care of everything and that uh, in fact if people were involved in therapy they would actually be prevented from going on courses and, and things like that. Uh, and you know I think over time, over the decades, it it turned out that that wasn't a complete picture either, and, and many people who had been meditating for many decades obviously could have used some therapy <laughs> yeah. to, to straighten yeah. out some things that meditation just weren't taking care of. Exactly. Yeah. I had many uh, long-term TM meditators in our courses, and it was very, very helpful. You see, there's... We are really living on many different dimensions, and on the dimension of the body-mind, there is no end to the possibility of purification, of unfolding, of freeing yourself from old patterns, old uh, unconsciousness. Mm -hmm. So that's where, at the time, therapy was very, very helpful. I mean, we are now in a time where more... Uh, streamlined possibilities are happening to release the unconscious, which I could talk about later. But anyway, I I don't want to miss any single moment of what I went through. And I have to say, awakening or what what the spiritual seeker is actually seeking will not happen through anything that you can do, because the you that does is in the way of all of it. True. And, that, and I had a very clear experience in that mm -hmm. uh, in 1999. It's like we left Pune in 1996 and moved here to Australia, and we were still continuing to, to run courses all over the world. And I became kind of more and more unhappy and frustrated because whatever I was teaching, it helped people, but I didn't feel free. And uh, so I came to a, to a moment where I felt nothing that I have learned and nothing that I, even though I've been on this path for so long, has really delivered what I was looking for. And it was such a strange situation because on the outside, everything looked perfect. I had a fantastic job, still have a very beautiful wife, best partner I can imagine, a beautiful house, uh, and everything on the outside looked perfect, and inside I became more and more desperate. And in a way, I came to a point where I was really in front of the wall and nothing worked anymore. And there I decided there was a spiritual teacher, you may know her, called Gangaji. Oh yeah, she's, she, she's been she, to my town here. All right, she she comes here every year, and mm -hmm. she offered a retreat 
And so I said, okay, now this could be a possibility, even though my spiritual identity was very, very kind of worried that if I go to another teacher now, I will betray Osho. So it was a very interesting time to realize how much I had identified with being a sannyasin and being with Osho. And opening to a new teacher was kind of almost like, oh my God, now I'm even betraying my my master, and that is unforgivable. (laughs) But anyway, I booked for this retreat, and before the retreat even started, it was one the the first night in in southern Australia, I took a walk in the forest at three o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep. And I was sitting on a bench towards the east, seeing the sunrise, and this is kind of, was a very simple moment where everything stopped. Like all my mind and these ideas of what to become, everything stopped. And for I don't know how long, I felt and experienced this complete oneness with everything. You know, I looked at the trees of I am the trees. I looked at the ants, I am the ants. I looked at anything I looked at, I was. I am the sky, the sun, everything. In this opening, and I could say this is really just grace finding me rather than me doing anything. All the struggle, all the despair, all the ideas of becoming something disappeared and it became so obvious that there is no I and that there has never been any separate I. It's just a thought or an illusion that kept the seeker alive. So also the seeker died at the time. So, so Everything that I was looking for suddenly fell in place and everything that Osho had said and Ramana, I was very connected to Ramana Maharshi, fell in place. Everything fell in place and then it was beautiful because in this morning Gangaji's retreat started and in the first morning I went up to her and kind of asked her because I was a little bit suspicious, my mind was suspicious and now I really have a sense that I got it or everything fell in place and there's no seeking anymore. But I, I needed to check whether I'm in a new illusion now or not. And she was very beautiful. She just confirmed everything very strongly and helped me to see that this has always been there. So from then on, basically, an underlying sense of oneness has never left me, which in a way, brought me to a moment where I felt all the work that I'm doing around the world, I cannot do anymore because I only see Buddhas everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Nobody to fix. But then later, a few months later, I realized, well, you know, to live in oneness consciousness is one thing, but to help people to bridge mind and psyche with no mind is still a helpful thing to do. So... My work kind of changed in a way because the perception had changed completely, but in the same way it's the same work, just from a different focus, uh, from a different source. And that uh, is what we share till today. Yeah, I mean, obviously you've always had the desire to serve, whether as a a ski instructor or a doctor or... You know, a therapist or or whatever. You've just found different expressions of it as you've evolved. You know, and yeah. you know you've you've acquired different tools that are kind of 
commensurate with your own inner state of development. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting, this point comes up almost every week in my interviews with different people about whether there is any need to improve uh, the, the person if there is no person. Because, you know, a lot of teachers argue that, well, there really is no person, and so uh, there is no one, no individual, and so all this discussion about improving the individual is nonsense, and all this discussion about levels of progress and stages of unfoldment and purification and all this other stuff is just uh, a trap or a distraction from the core reality, which uh, you just need to understand, and you're done. Yes. So it's a paradox. Yes, it just, yeah, it's a paradox, and it's probably not solvable. But in my own experience, it's like if you look at a plant, a plant never stops growing. A plant is already in oneness, but it never tro- stops growing. And the same with us. Uh, I never stop growing. Now, the effort to derive a sense of self from that growth, that is gone. Right. But growing continues, and I can give a very interesting example in my own life, because from that time on, I wasn't seeking anything anymore. So we were sharing, and I was running more courses, and it was very beautiful. But one day, uh, when we were teaching at a festival in Sweden, we came across the Diksha, the Oneness Blessings from the Oneness University, and we met a lady, um, Annette Karlström, there, who was kind of... <laughs> she was sharing Diksha with the people of the festival. And what she said didn't resonate at all with us. You know, you, you get a Diksha and you get awakened. Mm-hmm. But the energy that was transmitted during the Diksha felt a very clean and clear energy of consciousness. So... We felt on one side, the way it was presented didn't fit, but what actually was transmitted was very beautiful. Hmm. So when we saw a photo of Amma and Bhagwan, who who are the founders of the Oneness University, we felt they are really at this moment in time a very beautiful incarnation of male, female in in the highest uh, consciousness. Mm One day we may meet them. And then things happened. We came back here from our travels and in this little town of Malambimbi, a friend met a couple who just came from the Oneness University and they were looking for a place to do a workshop and we offered our place. And then basically we were invited to go to the Oneness University and our mind said, well, why? We don't need it, you know. We don't need that. But at the same time, it was interesting. And then we, in, in 2005, we went there, and at that time, there was the 21-day process. And I have to say, there was nothing new from the level of teachings, but it was a very new way of implementing the teachings and helping people to have a direct experience, and that we like very much. Mm-hmm. And I touched levels of consciousness that 
I heard Osho talk about, I wasn't, my ego structure wasn't interested in any more, but still I went through incredible experiences of cosmic superconscious that were in a way mind-blowing. So I realized, well, even though there's no seeker and no seeking, things still continue to unfold and I still grow and what what came through through the oneness university is just a wonderful addition to the work that we do anyway so i would say growth doesn't stop the seeking for becoming more that stops yeah in in the yeah. tm uh, world marishi used to outline you know stages of consciousness and he would say that you know cosmic consciousness is a state of self-realization or liberation, but he would sometimes refer to that as mere cosmic consciousness and just basically a preliminary foundation step for the unfoldment of much higher attainments. You know, God consciousness, unity consciousness, Brahman consciousness, and so on. Yeah. And you know, and I think what happens in some cases, if this is a valid, you know, um, cosmology of, of states of consciousness, is that uh, people attain that or pardon the, the, the expressions because attain doesn't really do justice to it, but you know, people uh, arrive at that uh, state of self-realization or liberation and they think, that's it, I've got it, I'm done. You know, and there's no sense of seeking anymore because one is full and, and there's, there's no, no, none of the craving that had characterized previous you know, yeah. stages of the journey. And uh, there can be a tendency, I think, to rest on one's laurels and to sort of regard all this talk of further unfoldments and, and development of experience as being uh, superfluous or, uh, you know, unnecessary. Uh, and, but, you know, your, your life is a case in point of, of someone who had, had stopped seeking, had reached that stage. There was no longer the craving uh, or the yearning or the feeling of inner frustration that you're missing something. And yet, look at how much progress has taken place yeah. uh, since then. Yes. And I think that will con continue, you know, I'm open. And, uh, I mean, I have to say, I'm constantly learning. We just had a beautiful weekend course here, and, uh, a Oneness Awakening course. Mm -hmm. And I'm always learning, but there's no... The learning has a different source. It's not sourced in creating a stronger sense of self. It is just, you know, like more and more colors of the rainbow are added, if you like, mm -hmm. and they happen by itself. The light behind the rainbow is always shining, but there are so many colors uh, in this life to be lived. And this is, I think, the symbol of the thousand-petaled lotus. Hmm. You know, there is a lotus. It doesn't stop growing. There's always more petals coming out. And it's so interesting and fascinating to see how in this lifetime, this body-mind keeps unfolding. Yeah. And it unfolds much easier without anybody being there. <laughs> <laughs> Getting in the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I had a conversation with a fellow a few weeks ago, and, and we kind of arrived at this point in the conversation where he was saying, you know, well, for me, 
I'm content now. I, I feel I don't feel like I need to seek or, or try to unfold anything else. I'm just living my life, raising my son, and enjoying. And but yeah, I can understand how other people would have the orientation of you know really wanting to experience more, learn more, know more, unfold more, even though they've you know they've arrived at that same level of contentment that I enjoy. Uh, but I kind of I kept needling him a little bit to suggest that you know there is this force of evolution. It's like a river we're going in. And whether you're swimming with the river or just floating along, uh, sooner or later you're going to find yourself encountering new shores and, and new, new experiences because this, this force that's really, I think, ultimately responsible for all the marvelous diversity and richness and beauty of the universe is also you know, that which animates us. And, uh, and we can't help but be influenced by that no matter where what level or state or <laughs> stage we're at it's going to keep moving us along and if we choose to just sort of relax for a while and maybe be in some little eddy in the river and go around circles for a bit fine but it's, at some point we're going to get kicked out of that eddy and discover that whoa you know there's actually a lot more even though i was or even though i had stopped seeking it seems that i haven't stopped finding absolutely absolutely <laughs> And that finding, I mean, we are in the river, and the river flows faster and faster. I mean, consciousness itself is growing so fast these days. Um, I'm getting jealous, like, we, in this weekend, people got what I needed 25 years to get in two days. Huh? Yeah, I was speaking <laughs> so, to a guy last week, and, and he, he put it very nicely. He was saying that, you know, back in the days of the Buddha, it was though there were a very thick membrane that the Buddha had to kind of pierced through in order to have his awakening. But so many people have pierced through that now, and, so, and, it's, and it's with more and more frequency people are piercing through it, that the membrane has become very porous and easy to pierce yeah. through. <laughs> yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think in the coming years uh, we will see such a change, unbelievable change. I just, uh, we just a few, two weeks ago we came back from China and from Hong Kong and we we had some amazing courses uh, in, in Shenzhen with a hundred people, five-day course, and the transformation of people is just unbelievable. Hmm. And I think as as consciousness grows, it it it's almost like light penetrates into so many old mind patterns that uh, there's more and more light, and we will see awakenings happening spontaneously very soon everywhere. It seems to be happening, and that, that's part of the reason I decided to do this show. Um, there are other shows like this, of course, people interviewing people all over the world. Uh, but here in my town, at least, um, you know, there are a couple thousand people meditating out of a town of 10,000, two or 3,000 meditators. And in addition, yeah, and plus a, a, a thousand Vedic pundits chanting Vedic, you know, Rudra Bashaks and so on all day long. So it's an interesting place to be in the middle of Iowa. Uh, but you know, and more and more people are finding that they're on, they're having these awakenings or are, are on the verge of them. But there's there's a certain skepticism or doubt that ordinary people, uh, living ordinary lives, working in ordinary jobs, could be having you know genuine, profound, permanent 
awakenings, you know, because there's some tendency to think that there's something so special about spiritual awakening. You you look special, you talk special. When you walk into the room, people feel a wave <laughs> of darshan, you know, and uh, <laughs> you know. So and you look at a guy that seems perfectly ordinary, and and if he says he's had he's awake, he's he, you know, people think well, I think his ego is just getting a little out of whack. Well, you see, I would see it completely different. The ordinary people have much more chance to awaken because they don't have all these spiritual ideals. Mm. Because if I look at myself, really, in the whole journey, for a while I was very interested in spiritual power, that which has nothing to do with spiritual awakening. Mm -hmm. In awakening you become so ordinary and so simple that of course nobody notices it, because yeah. you're just simple, you, you don't live in an inner conflict and you're completely simple living your day-to-day -day life in presence. Mm -hmm. So I now get very suspicious when somebody is so special because then it's a, it's a more subtle way of the spiritual ego trying to manifest itself, yeah. which is just, just another huge trap. I think it's one of the bigger traps. The worldly ego is a good trap, but the spiritual ego is the biggest trap. And Thank God I had a wonderful master, Osho, just kept cutting our heads. He was supporting us to become really big in our ego structure and then cut the head. And <laughs> Interesting. So he would, he would build you up and then cut you down again? I can uh, give you an example. You know, I, uh, when I lived in Pune, I became kind of a famous Pune therapist. Everybody knew me and so on. And uh, then I asked him a question in Darshan, you know, because I was a little bit suspicious about myself. You know, am I really so silent and meditative? Or is that happening just because I love to run groups and because then I'm in a certain position mm -hmm. and people adore me and that helps me to kind of be silent? Mm -hmm. And there's a beautiful lecture. <laughs> if you want, I can send it to you. Sure. <laughs> where he reads my question, and at that time I, I was still called Fritjof. No? Uh -huh. I said, Fritjof, now, theoretically speaking, we all know you are a very good therapist. Mm -hmm. But practically speaking, you know, and I know, and everybody else knows, that things look very different. <laughs> Basically, you feed yourself through the energy of your participants and the participants kind of put you up and this is why you feel good. Mm. You have to go deeper into meditation and realize who you truly are. Mm. That you don't become dependent on the on the opinions of others. It's a beautiful lecture with a lot of laughter. Now you can imagine I was sitting there in the front rows with three thousand people in Buddha Hall getting the hit from the master. Mm. So so beautiful. <laughs> it sounds like he did it with a lot of gentleness and kindness, though, you know? Yes, yes, with a lot of humor. I mean, he has he had so much humor. A lot of love. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting point. I mean, I've seen it happen many times. And, in fact, I'm just reading a great book by, uh, I mentioned this in several interviews because it takes me a long time to read books, but there's a book by a woman named Mariana Kaplan called Halfway Up the Mountain, The Error of Premature ah. Claims to Enlightenment. Have you heard of that book? I heard of the book. I, uh, I, I would love to actually get it. It's one of the books that are on my list to get. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it.
And, um, yeah. but she, she breaks it down into a lot of different chapters. And, and one of the chapters is about the dangers of just what you're talking about. The ego appropriating a certain level of realization and then uh, allowing it to become aggrandized through that and, yeah. uh, causing all sorts of mischief. And there's so many examples we've seen of that happening in this, on the whole spiritual scene, you know, over the years. Yes. <laughs> because on a certain level, you get very powerful. And if you're not aware that this power is not yours, that it's kind of, you are a vehicle for it, uh, the tendency, again, Osho had a very beautiful lecture called the Seven Valleys mm -hmm. Towards Enlightenment. You have to kind of, you have these peaks and then you have to go through the next valley and another peak, you have to go through the next valley. It is very tempting if you're not completely empty to derive a sense of self from all the attention you get. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's just natural. I yeah. interviewed a guy a couple of months ago um, who had had some profound kundalini awakenings and he felt like he was really awakened and, and he seemed like a sincere enough guy and genuine and all. And so we had this interview and after the interview, it's like he went nuts. He started calling himself Bhagavan and he called and he's calling himself a guru and he quit his, his hundred thousand dollar plus job and left his family and started going all around and posting all kinds of crazy stuff on the internet. And uh, I felt kind of guilty for having facilitated this. <laughs> I, I put his interview up on my, on my blog initially, at least uh, the picture of it saying, you know, but then I took it down again. I thought, well, this is getting out of hand and he doesn't need more attention. He, he needs less attention. Uh, but I think he's kind of settled down now, but it really does seem to be a danger. Here in, here in Iowa, here in Fairfield, Iowa, there was a guy a while, this was like 20, 30 years ago, to whom this happened, and he you know, began calling himself a world teacher, and he hired a helicopter and dropped leaflets on the meditation hall while people were in there, you know, <laughs> advertising himself, so that the security guys ran around and picked up all the leaflets before people came out of the meditation hall, but, you know, it really was a wild scene for a while. He was buying full-page ads in the newspaper, you know, uh, challenging Maharshi to, uh, uh, you know, debates and, and, uh, so part because of that sort of thing, people around here at least and perhaps elsewhere are leery of people who, you know, step forward as being awakened teachers or, awake, or just awakened people. They think, whoa, whoa, we don't want another one of those, you know. And, and yeah. you know, maybe it's good in a way that people are cautious. I mean, you can take it too far and reject everybody, but it's good to take every everything with a grain of salt and be a, a little bit, have a little bit of scrutiny, a little bit of, you know, sober inquiry and, and, and if a person is genuine they should be able to stand up to that without getting their feathers ruffled. Exactly. <laughs> but you see all this will disappear very soon because so many people will be awakened and will recognize it as the most natural and simple thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Just a very simple state of presence that the specialness will completely disappear. That is That's a very good point. Yeah, and that again was another one of the motivations I had for doing this show. Let's let's get it out there. Let's take the the yes. let's take the mystery out of it a little bit, you know, and Absolutely. and realize that it's 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 a lot it's becoming a lot more commonplace. Yes. I mean, I think one of the biggest traps in our spiritual evolution is as we evolve we develop cities, we develop spiritual powers, mm -hmm. we can influence through thought, we can do many things. And uh, it's very important that if you are 
you know, if one of the listeners is is caught in that, to not uh, derive a new sense of self from these powers, but let them come and let them go. They are not important, really. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. There's this beautiful, um, beautiful story of Ramakrishna and one of his disciples who had this beautiful awakening that he could put thoughts into other people's minds, and he put a thought into. Uh, the mind of one of the disciples who had collected many stones and prayed to them as gods and this uh, awakened guy he said this is total nonsense these stones are just rocks please you know throw them in the river uh, he gave this thought into the mind of this uh, innocent guy and so he threw them in the river was very sad, and then Ramakrishna kind of uh, met him and said, why did you do this? I said, I don't know, but um, my mind suddenly told me that Ramakrishna knew who put that thought in, in yeah. his mind. And he was uh, basically ruffling the feathers of this so-called awakened person, and he didn't get liberation until Ramakrishna died. Ah, interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um so you mentioned the oneness thing, and uh, here in my town there are a couple of oneness teachers, and I have a, a very good friend that, that I've known for 40 years, and we've taught together and everything, and he lives in California, and he's a oneness teacher. His name is Eric Eisen. I don't know if you've ever run into him. Um, no. But uh, sometimes these, the folks here in town say things to me that make me a little skeptical, and perhaps you could address, some, some, you know, address this skepticism. They say, oh, well, Bhagavan was on a phone call with 800 people, and all 800 people got enlightened on the phone call. And I think, oh, come on, you know, give me a break. That, that sounds a little bit uh, fantastic. Um, so I don't know if, you know, maybe you have a more sober view of the whole yes. thing. <laughs> yes, well, on one side, I mean, in the moment, Bhagwan has a webcast every Sunday. And uh, and he has a kind of uh, TV webcasts inside India with more than I think now recently he did one in Pune with more than a hundred thousand people, mm -hmm. and uh, many people actually had a shift in perception. Mm -hmm. What what I would say is I think the biggest misunderstanding of oneness teachers in the West that feel love and connection to Bhagwan, And uh, the reality is that we Westerners have a different mind than, than the Indian mind. You see, when we came to Oneness University, Bhagwan said, after this course, you will be all enlightened. Mm -hmm. After our 21-day course. And of course, I'm pragmatic. I said, this is, you know, how can he say something like this? This is nonsense. <laughs> and uh, then we had a darshan with Bhagwan, and it was the same time, actually it was our third time we were in India with him. Uh, it was the time when Tony Robbins was there also. Mm -hmm. no? <laughs> and already with our first darshan, I said, Bhagwan, I understand what you're saying but you need to understand that the Western mind will get very confused. If you say, after this course, people will be enlightened, we take it literal. We have a timeline. We say, okay, now today is the 
I don't know, 23rd, and on the, 20, on the 30th you will, you will be enlightened. And if you are not enlightened on the 30th, everybody will be disappointed and feels cheated. All right. Um, and then Bhagwan said, well, you see, in India it's very different. I, as a master, need to say that after this you will be enlightened, which is really like a strong intention. It helps the mind to move in that direction. And in India, the sense of time is not there. So it may be after the course, it may be after three weeks, after three months, after three years, after 30 years, after 300 years, <laughs> lifetime. That doesn't matter. Huh. But it will happen. And so <laughs> I said to Bhagwan, you know, you need, you need to really see and change these promises for the Westerners, because that will create a very much confusion. Mm. And uh, so, on a certain level, he did that, but on a certain level, he still has an Indian mind. How to say this? There is a reality in it. It's like, for example, we, we, had, we had this One is Awakening course over the weekend, and from 18 people, five had a strong shift in perception, really just out of the blue. No? Now, I don't know how lasting this is. This will be to be seen. But definitely something is happening also in China, in our courses, or in Hong Kong, or in Taiwan, or in, in Korea. We just came from a big trip. And so many people kind of very naturally say, you know, it's true, there is no self. I, mm. I'm not there. Mm. Everything is happening naturally and automatically. But it's so simple that they don't dare to call it awakening. And the enthusiasts about, uh, around the Oneness University who are actually teaching, they have, in a way, adopted part of the Indian mind. Mm -hmm. Let's say, you know, everybody's awakened. So I think rather than calling them liars, it's more like there's a certain enthusiasm that uh, is part of this whole incredible spreading of consciousness, not just through the Oneness University, but Oneness University in the moment is, is huge. You know, I have friends who are in America who give diksha in jails and the whole jail is transformed, the mm. Hispaniards and the, the, the Easterners, the, the Asians and the Americans were constantly fighting and killing each other. Right. And now it's one of the most peaceful prisons mm. uh, in America. And, or I had a talk to, <laughs> to um, 35 high court judges in Taiwan where the president of the high court invited me to have a talk and I guided them into a meditation and we gave them all diksha and they, they are in such a good space that uh, the supreme court uh, came immediately and wanted the same thing huh. so so there is something happening on the level of shift in consciousness with people that have never done anything which of course, the old seekers will always doubt because we have done so much yeah, and have been yeah. on the journey for so long. 
but there is a reality in it. I would take it with a grain of salt. I wouldn't say that from 100 people, 100 people are awakened. I think that is a part of the Indian mind that kind of creates that vision and hope that it's possible. Right. And there is a there is a truth in it that shifts are happening back, uh, left, uh, right, front and center, everywhere in, in an on a degree that is unbelievable also for my old seeker's mind. It's just, yeah. it's, uh, it's really amazing. Well, I think as old, as old seekers, you know, we were, we've been kind of preparing the ground for decades, yeah. you know, doing, doing the dirty work, shoveling the, the rocks or whatever. Uh, yeah. And, uh, you know, and I mean, some of these young kids that are coming in now, you, you, you see these, these really young folks that are just beaming and are having levels of experience, you know, that are beyond anything I've had so far. And, and you know, they, they haven't done that much yet. <laughs> and, exactly. you know, but some really special people are, are kind of coming along and it's sort of like the, maybe we got sent down to be the shock troops to kind of, you know, clean, yeah. clean things up again before they came, before they came in. It all has kind of uh, its own timing, no? Yeah. I mean, at the time of Osho, you know, we were really purifying the mind, and uh, Osho, Osho's vision was so strong to allow this awakening to happen. And, you know, we tried to find some explanation through Osho's words about the Oneness University, and... Um, and actually, there is one lecture where he predicted that towards the end of the, the century, before 2000, there will be a big group in India, like originating in India, that will spread awakening all around the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, obviously, among many other people, uh, this is what's happening through the oneness. It's, yeah. it's, quite, it's quite amazing. Yeah. And of course, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't believe the the extraordinary stories of of a hundred percent awakening through one phone call. Uh, that is kind of the excitement of right. awakening right. happening. But but I wouldn't completely dismiss it either, either because a lot is happening. Yeah, and <laughs> and also the word awakening should always be qualified because there are many degrees of awakening and there are many degrees of stability of awakening. Yeah. You know, you can, yeah. we've all had experiences which have come and gone and, yeah. uh, you know, so, but, you know, obviously something significant is happening. It's not just all imagination. Exactly. I mean, all this hyperbole and excitement about, you know, 800 people getting enlightened in a phone call, it, it does lend itself to disillusionment later on if a person really buys into it too literally or too strongly yeah. you know so it's, it's i i've i've learned to take everything with a grain of salt you know which doesn't mean i'm cynical but it just means that you know okay fine there's i'm sure there's some truth in that but there's always the other hand you know exactly exactly <laughs> i think that's an intelligent way to see it um and kind of something very, very beautiful is happening. And what you said before, I think that is very important. If I look at myself, while in Pune with Osho, I had so many awakening experiences where the mind would say, I've got it, and then it went again. And I know many people who say, you know, I was awakened for so and so long, and it's gone. 
And I think the biggest misunderstanding is the confusion between uh, an awakening experience and the awakened state, which is an underlying hum of presence, I could call. Right. Because every experience comes and goes. I had extreme cosmic consciousness experiences, God-realization experiences, but that comes and goes. Ultimately, if somebody asks, are you awakened, I cannot answer because it's not a static label that you can put on yourself, this is who you are now. Right. It's and there also is, is no you who gets awakened. I mean, it's... Exactly. <laughs> There's nobody there. Right. So, I, li I prefer the word awakening. It's a constant unfolding into dimensions that keep opening and uh, keep opening for everyone. Yeah. And as you intimated a minute ago, as they keep opening, there's some kernel, there's some thread that is always there. You know, it's yeah. like that doesn't change, that doesn't get improved upon, that doesn't, that's not gained, that's not lost. It's, it's always there. And then on that foundation, or in, or just alongside of that, there are all kinds of possible developments that can take place. Yeah. Yeah. yeah There's absolutely. a nice story about Ramana Maharshi, which I've told before on these interviews. I won't tell it too many more times, but it kind of comes in nicely here. Um, there was a story where, I forget who it was, it might have been Ramesh Balsakar or, uh, or Papaji or somebody who studied with Ramana Maharshi, and he he was having all kinds of profound celestial experiences and he was he would see krishna and he would play with krishna and so on and he was th these were very delightful to him and he managed to get an appointment with ramana maharshi which was a, uh, difficult to do at that stage because he'd become old and very well known and so on so he didn't get appointments with him very easily and so he went for this appointment but krishna showed up and he started playing with krishna and having and got waylaid and uh, he was late for the appointment, and the attendants around Ramana Maharshi were, you know, getting very upset. And what's wh this guy is so arrogant? Who, who does he think he is? You don't just sh not show up for one of these appointments. They're so hard to get. Finally, he showed up, and Ramana Maharshi said, "You know, where were you?" Or something. <laughs> he said, "Oh, I had this experience, and I was playing with Krishna." And Ramana said, "Is he here now?" And the uh, man and the guy just. That was his awakening moment. He just realized that there was something, you know, that's not flashy, that's not, you know, going to be coming and going, and that that's that's the thing that one would want to awaken to. Mm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, what do you do on these? I mean, you go and you you travel around the world, and you said something about tantra, and you you've talked about diksha. I mean, do you have a whole potpourri of different things that you do according to the group, or is there, a, a, yes. you know, a kind of a standard routine that you run through with everybody? I mean, you know, what do you, how no, do you do? I, I like to do new things all the time. So we have what, like, there's one thing I teach, which I call transforming lives or counseling. I used to call it counseling from the heart, which is like a training to. Uh, for for people who want to work with people or be with people in a transformative situation. It's a six days training that I offer pretty much everywhere in in uh, Japan, in Korea, in Taiwan, in China, in Europe, and in South America. I have a, a series of courses that I call the Seven Rays of Grace, which is uh, seven times five days where we 
move through the different levels of consciousness uh, looking uh, con connected to the chakras like first chakra, second chakra, third chakra, looking at the story, the issues, the the topics and the levels of consciousness in the different chakras, which mm -hmm. is very interesting. So we have that running in China, in Taiwan, and in, in Korea in the moment, and in Sweden. And then once a year we do this Tantra retreat for couples, because my wife and me, we are together since 27 years now, and love is, keeps growing, mm -hmm. so we have something to share there. Mm -hmm. Then we have some open courses like the flowering of the heart or the sword and the lotus or love and relationship which are more open to investigate into the topics from the view of the awakened state. So we include a lot of satsang, a lot of direct pointing towards the truth. And then we have meditation retreats um, like between two days and six days retreats just in silence, meditating in satsang. So many different things and we keep, uh, we keep developing new things. So it sounds like some of these courses place more emphasis on experience and some of them place more emphasis on content of various kinds, you know, dealing with more specific aspects of life? Well, they are all pointing towards awakening. Mm -hmm just from different levels. It's like you can, you can awaken through the first chakra, through the topic of, of the body, of money, of grounding, of the earth. Uh, you can awaken through any chakra. And uh, you could say, if you like, as you enter through different chakras, the, the, just before the nothingness of no self, there's a certain essential state that is different in each chakra, which is really, you could say, what manifests as the gifts in a person. What is your gift in your first chakra? What is your gift in your second chakra? What is the gift in the third chakra? So it's kind of a, a flowering of the gifts, how they manifest through the body-mind in the world. Um, and of course, there's always pure consciousness that flows through that. Mm -hmm. So these these are more the, they are all experiential courses. And by now in most of the courses we include the diksha which helps the realization of these experiences in an incredible uh, more faster way in a way. And uh, so so are the so the various courses are they specifically designed to facilitate an awakening at a particular level, like you, you know, at just a particular, the level of a particular chakra, or are they all kind of ideally intended to bring about the sort of the no-self awakening by taking different angles on that? Yes, yes. They actually all point towards the no-self. Uh -huh. And... For, for example, the seven rays of the seven doors of grace, these seven courses, uh, in a way, we could say it's like you, there was one disciple who, uh, who awakened through a master in Tibet, I think Tilopa, and then Tilopa sent in, sent him to another master, to Atisha, and then Atisha sent him to another master. 
and each time he got awakened newly through a different door mm -hmm. so that he could see that every door leads to the same thing and that he could actually teach. Uh, in a way you could also say, for example, Jesus awakened through the heart. Mm -hmm. the Mohammed awakened through the th throat. Buddha awakened through the third eye. Huh. Krishna awakened through the crown. So these, this is how the different religions came into place because the, the essential quality before the no-self is different in the heart. It's different in the throat. It's different in the third eye. That's why there will never be a world religion because people that awaken through a certain quality will always tend to be more attracted to that part of the teachings. And the seven doors of grace are basically including most of these uh, experiences of awakening through different doors. And of course, we never know. For example, we had the yellow ray course in, in Korea right now. And in the earlier courses, people didn't have a shift in consciousness. And this time, maybe three or four people from 30 had a, had a permanent shift. Mm. So that ray did it for them. Hmm. And of course they will come back for the green ray and maybe have a different experience in this uh, awakening. So that's very interesting, which is really basically in, the, in Pune, in the, in the School of Mysticism, we experimented a lot with the, the seven levels of consciousness and ex exploring on, a, on an experimental level. So all that, what I learned there while I was still identified with mind and content comes very handy. <laughs> yeah. Down, no? So you're not saying that these different awakenings from this chakra, this chakra, this chakra are necessarily one is better than the other. You're saying no. it's, it's sort of like just going through different doors into the same building, so to speak. Exactly. Exactly. Uh-huh. And, and do you think that once you've entered the building, uh, metaphorically speaking, it's a different experience in there according to which door you have come in? Or do you think it's basically the same essential thing, you just have entered the door that is most easy for you to get through? It is the same essential thing, which is the realization of no self. And the experience, the embodied experience is different through each chakra, which makes it interesting and which kind of, I could say, expands the level of experiencing. You see, perhaps first our level of experiencing is just the heart or just the throat or heart and throat. But as awareness grows, more colors become available. Mm -hmm. And I think it is mainly for people who, who work with people, who help people in their transformation where these different approaches are helpful because if you have an experience of awakening through the third chakra, you will be able to help somebody uh, that maybe has that door most available because you can recognize it. And if, so, if you have then also experienced through the heart, then you can help somebody whose door is more the heart hmm. to, to be recognized in a way. So, 
that that made this approach interesting for me. And so you're also saying that if you have had an awakening, let's say through the heart, it doesn't mean you can't go ahead and have awakening through the throat. Even though you're already awakened, you can somehow, yeah. you, you know, you, you don't leave the house to come back in through a different door, but somehow or other you do experience awakening from a different angle and then another angle and then another angle. So, so what's actually happening there? It's not like the essential awakening is getting uh, any more awake. It's more like you're, you're kind of just opening up different petals of the flower uh, through approaching that's, it by different angles. That's the best way to, to say it, yes. It is, you see, awakening, no self, nothingness, pure consciousness stays always the same. But the embodiment in this body-mind during this lifetime, uh, the level of experiencing can endlessly expand. So you're yeah. just unfolding different facets so that you that's can enjoy right. it uh, in a more multifaceted way yourself. That's, that's and, the and best way. And be of way. greater use to people because you, you've kind of like, you know, unfolded a certain aspect that might resonate more with this person and then you've unfolded another aspect yeah. that might resonate better with that person. That's right. Uh -huh. That's right. So this is one, one series of courses. And then, you know, we work a lot with these two main paths. You could say there's the path of awareness and meditation, and there's the path of love. And it seems for some people a discrepancy or a difference. But like the path of awareness, when I was meditating or when I'm meditating, it's always like the realization I'm not my body, not my mind, not my thoughts, not anything that I can experience. This is why meditators go into the desert. Mm -hmm. and then when you look at the path of love, the message is completely different. I am my thoughts, I am my body, I am everything that I can experience. I'm not only me, I'm also you, I'm everyone. Mm -hmm. And for some people, one path is more uh, connected to their inner nature and for some the other path. But eventually, in the meeting of love and meditation inside of you, which is really the meeting of life uh, experiences welcomed in love and the meeting of nothingness as I'm nothing. In that meeting, you could say we become transcendental human beings. Hmm. So we work a lot with these two sides in one course. Which one course, for example, we just did in in China is called the Sword and the Lotus, and we have a few more courses in, in Europe like this. So basically it's always looking at the same thing, but people's minds uh, are different, so we try and meet people's minds so that they feel comfortable in pursuing that uh, pathway. Nice. Yeah, wow. It sounds, well, it sounds like you're doing a lot of good for a lot of people and having a lot of fun in the process. It's fun, yes. I mean, I, I feel so blessed. Oh, we both, we mainly, we do a lot of courses together, my wife and me. Mm. And we just feel immensely blessed. It's, uh, it's such a joy, you know, people come come and they maybe feel miserable or disturbed and they go out in, in happiness and bliss. It's very rewarding. <laughs> That's great. Well, I'll have, a, I'll have a link on my site to yours so that if people want to get in touch and find out more about these courses, they can do that.
Um, yes. Is there anything that um, you feel we haven't covered that you know, I, I, I haven't thought to ask or you haven't thought to say that or you haven't had a chance to say that that is missing from our discussion? I think we covered pretty much a lot. <laughs> maybe when you ask me, maybe the secret comes back into my mind. <laughs> you mean that videotape, the secret? The, the videotape, the secret. Uh -huh. um, about manifesting your reality mm -hmm. that comes into mm -hmm. my mind. And again, you know, when you realize that there is no self, then manifestation constantly happens anyway, but there's no sense of self that tries to become something better. Mm. And I think uh, for the listeners it may be important that instead of uh, trying to manifest a better reality uh, so that you have more feathers in your ego structure, mm -hmm. I would really recommend to awaken everybody to the passion for awakening. Get passionate into manifesting your awakening. Mm. <laughs> because that will take care of everything else. And then, then you still can manifest wonderful abundance uh, in your material life or in your relationships. That can continue. But there is not the fear that if you don't manage, you don't succeed, and you're not really good enough to manifest in all of these things. Mm. And lest people become cautious uh, or disinterested due to this phrase, no self, perhaps we should clarify that a little bit, because I mean, many people wouldn't find that to be an appealing term. You know, they would say, well, I don't want to have no self. I, I am, you know, I want to be somebody. I want to be myself. Um, yeah. And let me take a quick stab at it and then see how you would say it. But I would say that, you know, there is always this paradox. And, you know, you can be driving down the road at 70 miles an hour and have the, and the very distinct realization that there's nobody driving this car. And, uh, yeah. but, you know, but that's not scary because, on the other hand, there is somebody. I am driving the car, you know, here's hands, here's a foot on the, on the pedal, and, and everything's under control. So, uh, and that's not a crazy schizophrenic state. It's a, it's the it's a kind of the state of the reality of the situation, which is there's a level of one's life which is impersonal, which is silence, which is presence, and there is a level of one's life where if you whack your thumb with a hammer, darn, you're gonna you're gonna feel it, and it's 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 yeah. not gonna be like you know oh, that didn't happen to anybody. It's like shoot, <laughs> that hurts, you know. Uh, so there's there's a kind of a spectrum that we live. Yeah. And we, yeah. we, you know, we live on all points of that spectrum, and sometimes we zero in on one uh, f area of the spectrum more specifically, and other times maybe we're broadened out and, and so on. But does that do justice to what you're trying to say when you say no self? Yes. Well, when I say no self, it is really the end of the fear of not having enough or of not being enough or of not achieving, all this ends when, or at least I can say for myself, when that sudden little shift happens, my God, this separate I, it's a separate sense 
that I am separate from you, that I have to survive by myself, that everything else outside of me is separate from me, that disappears. Yeah. So that, and that is also the disappearance of suffering. It doesn't mean that pain ends, you know, somebody steps on my foot, there's still pain. <laughs> right. But uh, there's no suffering because there's no need of an ego structure that needs to repair itself and judge you for, for stepping on my foot. Mm -hmm. Or defend itself, yeah. Or defend itself. So this type of I thought is not there. And yes, of course, existence that lives through this body-mind, you could say, this I amness is more there than ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but this I, this I am, is pretty unlimited. Yes, it's really, you could say, almost say, I'm, I am existence, experiencing myself through this body-mind. It's like, for example, just now. As you listen, I listen. Something comes out of my mouth, but there's nobody really speaking. It is, there is consciousness watching the speaking and enjoying it through the body. Right. This is what I mean with self. That means everything stays the same. Of course, your, your personality patterns also stay the same and your, your way your preferences within the body-mind stays the same, you know. I like to eat good vegetarian food and uh, sometimes a nice fish, mm -hmm. and other people like to eat beef. Mm -hmm. So these preferences, of course, simply continue. Um, so, but, I don't know, you probably have that experience too, the, this is the fear of everyone and also the fear of every meditator, which I encountered deeply. Is On one side you want to awaken, but on, on, a, on the other side you don't want to go. <laughs> but uh, eventually, when that dissolution of the ego structure happens, you realize, my God, I've been always here. Always here. Yeah. You put it very nicely a minute ago. Something like pure existence or, or pure consciousness yeah. or, or something experiencing through the body-mind. Um, yes. and, and that's always been what's happening. It's just that, yeah. you know, for, for so long we misappropriated the ownership of, uh, of the body-mind. It's, it's sort of like we, we kind of assumed there was this little guy that ran it. And that, yeah. that and that lived in it, and uh, and you know, but really, it's a reflector of yeah. a much larger intelligence. And a friend of mine likes to use the phrase "sense organs of the infinite." We're all sense organs of the infinite, and and the infinite, uh, you know, enjoys having billions of sense organs through which it experiences this creation that it has created. And you happen yeah. to be a sense organ through which the infinite enjoys teaching and surfing and traveling and, you know, you love your wife and there's all these particular things which I'm sure are not in the least bit diminished in your enjoyment of them by having this broader perspective. In fact, you, you, experience, you experience them much more richly and enjoyably than when you were just kind of locked into merely an individuality without the broader perspective. Is that not right? That's a very beautiful way to put it, yes, yeah. absolutely.
Yeah. So I just wanted to bring that up because I have friends who take umbrage with this notion of no self. They feel like you know that that you're kind of having the 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 very the soul sucked out of you or something, and <laughs> you know losing that which makes you special. Yeah. Well, you may lose exactly that what makes you special, but you never lose that which makes you individual, which makes you unique. Right. You're not special, but you're unique, very yeah. unique. Yeah. Everyone's so unique. Mm -hmm. And the beauty is, you know, when there's no comparison anymore, then you can see the uniqueness in everyone and just love it. It's such, I mean, everyone is so unique. And it's so beautiful. Yeah. Nature is such a variety, and human beings are just so, <laughs> so unbelievably unique. I know you marvel yeah. at the at the infinite genius of the intelligence which is running this show. <laughs> yeah. 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 Okay. Well, this has been a very delightful discussion. I've I've really enjoyed talking to you. Um, yeah. Me too. Yeah, and you know we'll do it again sometime because. Obviously, your orientation is that it's a it's an ever unfolding adventure, and so you know a year or two from now you might have whole new things to tell us that you haven't you know, been saying today. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Who knows? No? <laughs> yeah. So thanks a lot, um, Rahasia. Um, let me conclude by saying that my name is Rick Archer, and I've been talking with Rahasia on Buddha at the Gas Pump. I will be linking to his website where you can, you know, get in touch with him, probably get on a mailing list, find out more about his courses all over the world. If you're just listening to this and you don't know what that website is or what my website is, it's batgap.com, which stands for Buddha at the Gas Pump, B-A-T-G-A-P.com. So go there and you'll find uh, this interview online and you'll find all the other interviews I've been doing and you'll find links to the websites of all the people I've been interviewing and YouTube videos and all sorts of things. Thank you very much for watching or listening and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Beautiful to meet you. Beautiful discussion. Namaste. Namaste. Thank you very much.